Well, hello. Welcome back to Come Follow Me with Fair Faithful Answers to New Testament Questions. My name is Jennifer Roach. Today we are going to talk about Gethsemane and the crucifixion. As you know, we are going through the Come Follow Me readings and addressing some of the questions that would come up between people in our faith and evangelicals, kind of as they come along in the readings. Not trying to start debates, not trying to fuel any of that, just trying to help you understand what your evangelical friends and family members and loved ones are saying, how to have a better conversation with them, so that hopefully you could share something from our faith with them that might encourage them in a way that they could understand better. So like we've been doing the last few weeks before I get started, I want to remind you about the FAIR conference, August 2 through 4 in Provo, Utah. Um, I want to tell you about another one of the speakers that I am so excited about. Um, there's a guy, Derek Westra. You maybe have never heard of him. Um, he's going to be speaking on the portrayal of Latter-day Saints in television. So if you have watched television at all in the last, say, two years, you've probably seen some shows that have some very interesting sometimes scary portrayals of Latter-day Saints. Derek works for the church. He leads the team that makes sure people around the world have access to information about the church that is presented in a way that is understandable in their culture. So they are also naturally watching the ways in which Latter-day Saints are portrayed um, in various forms of media. Um, they're, they're monitoring those things and trying to see, like, where could we provide some corrections to some of the false beliefs about people in our church, which I just, I am so into this talk that he's going to give, because that's a lot of what we're doing here, right? Um, evangelicals and, and Latter-day Saints just talk past each other all the time. And and honestly, some of that comes down to just stuff in popular media that people have seen, and, and they they think they know what we believe because they saw a television show. So I'm really looking forward to his talk. You can come in person, um, Provo, Utah, August 2 through 4. You can buy tickets on the Fair Latter-day Saints website, or you can stream from wherever you are for free. Um, we just ask, please go to the Fair Latter-day Saints website and register for streaming so that we can make sure we have enough capacity for all of that. Okay, today we are going to talk about what, in my opinion, is one of the strangest things that sometimes divides evangelicals and Latter-day Saints, and that is talking about Gethsemane and the cross. Traditionally, evangelicals place more importance on the cross because it's where the actual physical death happens. And Latter-day Saints have placed more importance on Gethsemane because it is where the Savior suffers emotionally, psychologically, and physically for our sins. All of this is leading us to a discussion um, that we're going to have next week on the atonement, various atonement theories, what do, what do evangelicals understand about the atonement, It's sort of this is like preparation to get to that. Um, you also will recognize in this episode some of the themes we've already covered um, in terms of like, don't you worship a different Jesus? Um, if you don't have a cross, you can't be a real Christian. Therefore, you don't worship Jesus. Like all of all of those themes come up here again. But from a 
kind of a slightly different angle. Um, and before I even get started, I, I must refer you to two resources that are really, really helpful on this topic. One, um, Elder Holland's 2022 talk, Lifted Up Upon the Cross. It is one of my favorite um, talks of General Conference that I have ever listened to. And I've actually listened to lots and lots of the back conferences. So that's in my top five for sure. And it addresses this issue really nicely. There also is an article on the FAIR website titled The Garden and the Cross, and it has um, tons of links and tons of references and all kinds of, of different things that you can follow and go down any rabbit trail on all this that you want to. So to start, we need to talk a little bit about the use of symbols and sort of how that has developed historically. Um, it, that's kind of always where we start around here, right? With uh, some history, you really can't um, do good theology unless you also can can have some sense of history. So that's why we start there. So Elder Holland mentions in his talk, it, and, and you can read about this in a lot of other places, that the cross it was not immediately a symbol for early Christians, um, and that's not because they didn't use symbols. They used a lot of symbols. Um, it's because that didn't develop for about 400 years after Christ. The reason that they used a lot of symbols is part where as human beings, there's just sort of this symbolic part of our brains that just understands things in a certain way. But also a large percentage of the population around the time of Christ would have been illiterate. So using symbols was a, a very, very helpful thing for them. Um, it also, it, in those first 400 years at different times and in different places, it was illegal to be a Christian, certainly was illegal to teach other people about Christ. So they had to develop a kind of a secret language, a code of sorts for talking about these things. And a lot of that happened through symbols. So some of those early symbols would mean something like to you and me today, the dove, right? All of us could see a dove and and have some understanding that was the Holy Ghost coming down on Jesus. It's peace. It's all these, right? Like we could get a lot of meaning out of that. They used that then. They used the good shepherd. They used the lamb. They they used all kinds of things that, that you and I would recognize. But they also used some that just immediately we would have no idea what to do with. For example, they used the peacock as a symbol of the death and resurrection of Christ. Like, why a peacock? What in the world? And it, and the reason why they did that is they had a cultural belief at the time. This was a like a, a belief in the Greek culture. So it had been around for quite a while. The belief was that if a peacock died, its flesh would not decay. I don't, I don't totally understand how it is that they maintained that belief, because certainly all you would have to do is kill one peacock. And I'm pretty sure its flesh does decay like normal flesh would. That was, I don't know. That's, that's what their belief was. And so the early Christians took this symbol of the peacock and applied it to Jesus Christ's death. Yes, he was dead, but he comes back. He, he, he doesn't actually decay in, in the dead way. So they would use a peacock as a symbol, sort of like here we talk about Jesus, and that could be like a secret code for them. Um, the, they also use the symbol of the 
pelican. And I'll tell you what I have been told about why that's true. If we have any pelican experts listening, number one, I need to know you and we must be friends. Number two, please um, give me a comment on if this is right. This is what this is what I have heard is that pelicans in nature, if there's no other food source available and it's the mother pelican, she will like, use her beak to to open up her own chest so that her little gooselings, pelicanlings, I don't know what you call a baby pelican, and and so that they could like eat off of her flesh while she's still alive. Please tell me if that's true or not. I should have looked it up. The early believers looked at this and they likened it to what Christ was doing for us on the cross, offering his flesh um, for our life, right? Like in theory that the, the mother pelican would do. Eventually, around the fourth century, we get to the cross being used as, as a symbol. A lot of reasons why that comes around at that time. And a lot of it has to do with Constantine makes Christianity legal. Um, and so there's a whole explosion of all kinds of things, um, including the symbols. So we're going to fast forward from the fourth century all the way to um, early American history. <laughs> there is a story I read in preparation for this episode. Um, there's a journal called just called Church History. It's a Protestant journal. They they do work on church history and tell all kinds of stories. And so in the Journal of Church History, there's a story, 1834, so very, very early, the priest at St. Mary's Episcopal Church in Burlington, New Jersey, decides to place a cross on top of their newly designed church. And basically the entire community of Protestants lose their minds over this because in that era, that was just not a thing that Protestants did. No Protestant churches had crosses on top of them. It was incredibly Catholic is what they thought. Um, the article um, mentions a letter that was written to the priest of that church, and he was accused of showing an outward emblem of the popery not popery, like the stuff that smells good, but like the Pope. Um, <laughs> using a cross, um, it, 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 they don't have any other way to conceptualize it in that era as, except for a Catholic thing. But right after that, things actually start to shift a little bit. And what happens is the Victorian era, so that was 1834 when they get in trouble for putting that cross on top of their church, Victorian era starts in about the 1840s, and it ushers in this era of fascination with nature. The Victorians were just obsessed with nature in all kinds of ways. And there were by then some Protestants who were kind of getting interested in the cross. Um, and, and what they did is they sort of subtly introduce it into the, the Christian vocabulary by producing crosses that were covered in flowers or leaves or vines or, or some kind of nature. And the symbolism is, is obvious, right? Something beautiful and alive sprouting out of something that was intended to cause death. So the, the, the Victorians sort of smuggle it into the, the Protestant era. It, by the 1900s, kind of Victorian 
thinking is out, there's much more a growing interest in kind of this neo-Gothic revival. You see that in the architecture of the day. Um, and what the people really wanted was not um, churches and buildings that looked like they were sort of cosplaying to be Gothic. They wanted them to be as authentic as possible. So there's a huge revival of um, research around that style and how it was all made. Um, and the Gothic churches were Catholic. They all have crosses on them. And those start to get included in American neo-Gothic churches. Um, if you are back East, if there's cathedrals, you know, they're not European cathedrals, but there's cathedrals in New York and in other places. And you certainly would see crosses on those. And, and you would have in that era as well. Um, the Baptists are the ones who are the longest holdouts for using crosses. They were so staunchly anti-Catholic that they only start using crosses when one of their preachers has this idea that they're going to sort of trick the Catholics into thinking that they should listen to them, the, the Baptists, and that way the Baptists could teach them their Baptist ways. That that That's how crosses get into Baptist churches, essentially. So in the 1800s, all, like all that to say, there's lots of movement about how Christians are thinking about crosses. But our church was formed in the 1830s primarily by converts from other churches who had not yet embraced the use of a cross. So this isn't in their church culture at all. And by the 1850s, 20 years later, our church is forced into some kind of an isolationist stance on a lot of things. We're not really participating in very much dialogue with other faith faiths at that moment. We don't want to. Um, so the movement that's happening in the Protestant world is is in, on an entirely different track than the movement that's happening in the Latter-day Saint world. Um, and, and on the cross topic, there is actually not very much movement. We, we'll see because that goes into the movement on Gethsemane. But if you fast forward about 100 years um, from like the around the 1850s, David O. McKay says 100 years later, that crosses are a Catholic form of worship, right? Like he's still sort of on the, like this is what it was like a hundred years ago. And in our church, nothing in the culture had changed to make crosses any more acceptable. So that was the right thing for him to be saying at that part or, or at that time. So how did the Latter-day Saints um, start to emphasize Gethsemane? And like, how did that come to be? Well, it didn't come out of nowhere. The evangelical criticism is that we are trying to avoid the reality of Jesus's death on the cross. So we move the emphasis to Gethsemane to make less of Jesus's death. That's what they're worried that we're doing. That's, that's their concern for us. It's not what we're doing, um, but that's what they think they're do that we're doing. Um, what I think is actually happening there, and I and I sort of look at this with a little bit of a sort of socio-psychological lens, is that human beings need symbols to express and understand complex topics, especially intangible ones like spiritual topics. And what Jesus is doing in dying and resurrecting is in 
incredibly complex. We need some ways to understand and explain that to ourselves. The cross as a symbol was not readily available to the saints. It it just it just wasn't. They they were they were developing along a different track in some isolation for understandable reasons. Um, and yet they still had that same need to, to talk about the death and resurrection in ways that could be understood. And just because we are human beings, that comes with talking about it in symbols. Um, the, 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 the reality is Jesus suffered in both places, right? Gethsemane and the cross, those two are not pitted against each other in reality. Um, so because the saints had Gethsemane as a symbol to be able to point to, that became the obvious symbol. It, so much so that in 1957, David O. McKay is saying it's not wise to use the cross because it's too Catholic. And sort of, in my opinion, the part he's not saying is, but you, but you have Gethsemane there, there's, we're still, we're still getting all of the same things. Um, even 40 years after McKay says that just 40 years, Gordon B. Hinckley is able to, to say, because the culture has changed enough by this point, it's, it's the nineties by this point, Hinckley says it was the redemption, which he worked out in the garden of Gethsemane and upon the cross of Calvary, which made his guilt immortal, universal, and everlasting. Or, sorry, which made his gift, not his guilt, made his gift immortal, universal, and everlasting. It's also proof for you. I don't know how to edit videos, so that's just going to stay in. There you go. Um, but he is able to say that, Hinckley is, because by then, by the 40s, there has been an awful lot of conversation between Latter-day Saints and the wider world and, and these things sort of develop. So that becomes a more understandable thing for him to say to the saints. For me, a lot of this brings to mind a quote from a Catholic scholar. His name is Stephen Webb. Um, he He's a scholar. He never converts to our church. He He's passed now, um, but he was very friendly and very fair to our beliefs. He was not trying to bash on our church in any way. He is trying to understand our church. Um, his writing is an, just an absolute gift, an absolute gem. I actually read a lot of him when I was thinking about converting to the church. He really, really, really helped me out. He has a great quote that says, um, members of our church depart from traditional theology most radically only when they are trying to do justice to the honor and glory of Jesus Christ. Like interesting, right? Like this Catholic guy gets it. He totally, absolutely understands what we're about. In another place, he says about our church, um, their Christology, which means like their understanding about Jesus Christ, is born out of a surplus rather than an insufficiency of faith. It puts creedal Christians, which would include evangelicals, in the odd position of saying that Mormons make too much of Jesus. And that's kind of what's happening here. 
evangelicals want to point to only the cross because Latter-day Saints had a time where our theology was developing a little bit more in isolation and because the cross was not readily available to us as a symbol for all of the historic reasons that I just explained, um, they, they, they don't let it be, right? Like they don't say like, oh, well, I guess we're not going to talk about that very much. They, they, they figure out and create a way to talk about it. It's there in the scriptures. It's not like they created something out of thin air. Um, but, the, but Protestants and evangelicals weren't working on that. Latter-day Saints were. And now in this era, like it's beautiful because we get we get both. Um, we find ourselves in this place of incredible richness today. And this is how Elder Holland is able to make the point he's making in his lifted um, lifted up upon the cross talk. His point being that a symbol is nothing if we don't take the reality of the thing seriously. It, it's not a necklace. It's not a piece of jewelry. It, it, quote from his talk, he, speaking of our faith, he says, it has nothing to do with pendants or jewelry, with steeples or signposts. It has to do, rather, with the rock-ribbed integrity and stiff moral backbone that Christians should bring to the call of Jesus has given to every one of his disciples. In every land and age, he has said to us all, if any man or woman will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Elder Holland goes on to talk about the many, many ways that we as saints are, are, are taught to do that. Stephen, Stephen Webb was right. Right? This is us making even more out of Jesus Christ, not less, as the evangelicals accuse us of. Um, it's a hard thing. To, it's a hard thing for them to wrap their minds around, though, in part because of that belief that they have that we're not worshiping the real Jesus, that we're trying to avoid the reality of the cross, that we're somehow trying to use um, good works to get into heaven. Listen to the last episode that we just did on that. Um, it's really, really hard for them to understand what in the world it is that we are talking about with Gethsemane. But my hope is that this um, episode has given you some ideas on how to have that conversation with them, because you will find a great deal in common with your evangelical friends and family, it, if they'll have the conversation with you, they love Jesus Christ. They are loyal to Jesus Christ. We love Jesus Christ. We are loyal to Jesus Christ. We have just developed that on, on two kind of parallel and different tracks in some ways. Next week, we will talk about the atonement. I will give you a tiny sneak peek. Um, in our church, we talk about the atonement in the singular. In the evangelical world, they talk about atonement theories in the plural. They don't mean theories like, oh, maybe it happened and maybe it didn't. They mean we have about 12 or 15 different ways to think about what Christ was doing in the atonement. And, and there's really, there's, there's some agreement on some of that, but that has changed throughout history. And I mean, you know, we'll get into all of that. I hope you will join me. It's a fascinating um, 
conversation. I actually, this is one of the episodes next week's that I have looked forward to doing the most, our different views on the atonement. So please join me then. And I will look forward to seeing you.